Hi everyone, and welcome to The Contrarians with Adam and Adir, the only pod that takes you behind the scenes and gives you the inside word on the world of tech and growth from the insiders. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of Luxury Escapes, journalist and angel investor. And I'm joined by my great mate, Adir Schiffman, executive chairman of Catapult Sports and serial investor. In today's episode, we've got some big stories, including the latest loss at Booktopia, the goings-on at Maggie Beer, and Airbnb's regulatory struggles. Let's get into it. And welcome back out here. It's great to be recording our, our third episode. I think that the feedback I've, the feedback I've gotten has been amazing. I think we've got a, a pretty high MPS here. I, I think you've had some pretty good feedback. I'm shocked. I thought, I, I, you know, I had no expectations, except I thought... Um, this is a great opportunity to catch up with you on a regular basis and have fun. <laughs> and it's a good two beds. So yeah, I, I've been. It's it's been quite overwhelming, like positively. Like I'm waiting for the I'm waiting for the negative for the tidal wave to hit me. Yeah, <laughs> the Qantas style tidal wave. I actually told my wife, oh, you know, I've, I've, we're doing a, I'm doing a podcast again. She goes, oh, didn't seem overly impressed. I said, oh, it's with ideas. She goes, oh, I'll listen to that. So well, we have this recurring thing where I'm getting between you and your wife. I'm very uh, uncomfortable about uh, this situation. <laughs> she's, uh, she's, a, she's a massive fan of one of us, uh, not me. Uh, and we've got some big stories that's this week. She, by the way, I just want to say, that's because she doesn't know me as well as she knows you. Yeah, that's that could change that's quickly. Right. <laughs> we've got some big stories this week to discuss, uh, including the latest loss at Booktopia, the goings-on at Maggie Beer, Airbnb's regulatory struggles. So welcome, dear. Let's get straight into our first story, which is Booktopia, which set a challenging economic climate coupled with the impacts of its transition to a new fulfillment centre led to a loss of $29 million in the financial year just gone. Sales fell 18% to $197 million, while underlying EBITDA declined to only 4.6 million, a drop of 173%. They did see some positives though, with average order value growing slightly to $80. So dear, you've you've been you've covered Booktopia a bit. What are your thoughts on the latest $30 million loss? I mean, you'd have to say if you want to play life on expert mode, you would try and be a pure play online bookseller. I mean, that has got to be one of the hardest things to do. I think everything is not exactly as it meets the eye with this. So things were way down. I think we should talk about gross margins at some point and what gross margins means and yeah. why that's a you know difficult thing for this business. But to put it in perspective, you know they had a COVID boom. People were reading a lot of books during various lockdowns, and part of their report was if you look at their results compared to FY twenty. The revenue was up 20% and the average order value was up 20%. So, you know, I think that it's not an unreasonable way to look at the world comparing to growth, like compounding, I mean, flat growth pre-COVID, like just saying we're up 20% compared to FY20. I think that's maybe a slightly generous way to look at the world. But looking at compound growth over that period, so how much did you grow each year for the last three years, I think that's more relevant. And so, you know, 20% is probably whatever it is, 7% a year or whatever it is, compounded growth. Mm. So I think that it's not as terrible as it looks, provided that you don't mind losing money <laughs> consistently. So if you go about Booktopia, Booktopia essentially launches a mini Amazon in Australia. And I actually have a, a bit of a soft spot. Obviously, we both know Tony Nash, who was the former CEO founder of, of Booktopia, who left in a sort of boardroom coup of sorts. He's still uh, on the board, isn't he? He's, I think he's still executive he's chairman. Oh, he's, he's on the board, uh, but he obviously isn't CEO anymore. Uh, and he left involuntarily last year. 
But when I wrote a book back in 2009, Booktopia were my biggest supporters. I hadn't actually heard of them at the time and they gave it a huge run. We're number one seller, sold more on Booktopia than I think on Amazon. So I've always got a bit of a soft spot for Tony and Booktopia ever since. Uh, as you said, there's no harder business to compete with than Amazon. And Amazon obviously launched in books. They own Book Depository as well. So they dominate the market. They've got Kindle, which, which obviously mm. you can integrates beautifully. I think the if you look at the challenge of Booktopia is they listed at a really high price. They listed at, I think, about $3 a share. Right. It's now $0.10 cents a share. So yeah. that's a, a 97% drop. Yeah. They were never value. They were never really worth $3. They were never a $600 million business. They're now worth $22 million. They're probably yeah. not a, necessarily a $22 million business either. So they were overpriced at one point. And like any, the market tends to overcorrect, right? So it was over. And it pushed them up to... During COVID, their share price hit basically yeah, basically three bucks, more than three dollars a share. Yeah. It's now ten cents. So, yeah. so they were they pushed, listed in COVID, didn't they? Uh, they listed. I think the tail end. Oh no, they listed. You're right. They listed in twenty twenty November twenty twenty, which was yeah. peak COVID almost in many yeah. ways. So yeah. they had those big tailwinds. COVID pushed it even higher when it continued, and then obviously COVID jumped off. They started losing money or kept losing more money, and this is the problem. You go for it. It's just a, a, the same old story, and this is both private and public. There's no real benefit in getting a valuation that's too high because you just get punished on the way down more so. Unless you're selling out your shares at that valuation with a secondary sale. So there's no point. There's nothing good about raising money and putting it all into the business at a valuation that's too mm. high. There's something very fantastic about selling your whole business at a valuation yeah. that's too high. If they could have sold out at three bucks oh, to Amazon, sure. then you're, you're laughing. I think, and the only people that have really done that is is Nick and Ant at Afterpay, who sold yeah. a virtually worthless business for seventeen billion dollars, which is one of the great corporate. Uh, transactions well, of Australian history. I mean, you're always looking for arguments. I'll, I'll argue with you about the worthlessness of that business. Like, I don't think that's what we should fight about that on another episode. Yeah, we'll we, find we some. We could, by the way, uh, did you see that um, Zip had its results? Had uh, better last results. Week? And la like Larry Diamond, who runs it there, is a fantastic guy. Um, like, there might not be the catastrophe that people were predicting. I thought that he would find a way to bring the business back. And it's not going to go back to the you know all-time highs, I don't think. But I think he'll make a business out of that. But I want to, before you rebut me on that, because I know that's going to be, we can have a 20-minute discussion on, uh, on Buy Now, Pay Later. Yeah. I think Booktopia works like this. There's some bad things and some opportunities. The bad things are, you know me, I hate selling other people's stuff. Yeah. Is there anything, if you're going to sell other people's stuff, is there anything worse than selling a product that is completely generic in an industry where the only pe thing people are looking for is the lowest price on a totally mm. interchangeable product? And so I yeah. think that's a challenge selling only books. Yeah. The other problem is their gross margin. And so we should say like the gross margin is if I sell something for a dollar yeah. after I pay for the thing that I sell and let's say send it out as well, yeah. how much do I keep of that? Yeah. And so with Booktopia, they're keeping 27 cents or something. Which isn't terrible for, for some businesses. It's like, it's, it's doable at scale. I mean, JB mm. Hi-Fi's got $10 billion of revenue and they mm. do it at 23% margins or 22, yep. whatever it is. And they make a lot of money out of that. Now, Booktopia's got $200 million of revenue. It's a different scale. Yep. But this is like JB or supermarket margins. Mm. And so I think I would rather, like I would not run a business on gross margins of 25%, but that's my own preference. And yep. definitely, you know, if I'm selling hotel rooms... I'm probably keeping 25% of the money mm, for less. Less. Right. I think the challenge, uh, Jeremy and myself often, Jeremy, my co-founder at Lux, will often uh, bemoan our, our getting involved in a, mar a business that has margins of 20% on a good day for a travel business. We've got flights mar into margins of 10% mm. on a 24 billion turnover. So you've yeah. got enough turnover there. Uh, but yeah, 
obviously software margins are 85, 90% and give you, I imagine catapult's margins are probably not that far off. Well, software margins are 85 or 90% because they're dishonest <laughs> because like they don't factor in all of the developer expenses like, and they'll say, well, this is about creating new features and tomorrow's revenue. That's mm. what they say. But as we know, a whole ton of development expense is about keeping the product oh, usable If, if we talk about the gross level, forget about below the line yeah. and forget about your, your staff costs, whether they're capitalised or not, but software margin often at 80, 85 Because you mean like – I'm about the incremental margin. cost to serve is basically like adding a customer for a yeah, exactly. business or mixes, is basically yeah. nothing. You yeah. keep the whole dollar. Same as a media business. Yeah. It's uh and and obviously at a travel business you're getting 15 20% or, yeah. or less. Uh Booktopia, I think the other issue with Booktopia and getting back to Booktopia, not only do they sell a commoditized product, they sell a commoditized product that has like 50,000 different SKUs because every know. book's a different SKU. I so know. how do you do you keep all the SKUs in stock so you've got a great range for customers to come to, which is super expensive and you've got to mass, need massive warehouses, or do you keep just the sort of top 5,000, in which case you, which is much cheaper, but you lose a bunch of customers? there's such a big long tail in books, right? Like exactly. the top books sell a ton, but the books that people buy 10 of like they add up to much more. I, th I mean, I think, by the way, this is the opportunity for Booktopia. So you have to say this, even on $200 million of revenue, and they're keeping, let's say, 27% of it, they're still making $55 million of gross profit. Mm. Like that is a lot of money. And the fact that they lost money, you know, some of this loss was riding down things, which yep. we'll talk about more with Maggie Beer. Yep. But uh, so my personal view is, I think I could make money keeping $55 million of gross profit in Booktopia. Mm. And so I don't mean that in a disparaging way to the people yep. running the business. They've got other views of what they're trying to do maybe. But like I looked at it, the cost of people are maybe half of that $55 million. And then there's some marketing. And presumably I don't see much brand marketing for Booktopia, which is I think a yep. problem that they've got. Like most of their marketing is clicks yep. is my guess. Yeah. And so I think you should be able to make money on that $55 million. They don't lose much cash. Like I think the problem is they got no cash left in the bank. You know the cash in bank at rep the reporting date of like whatever it was June thirty yeah. was like less than a million dollars. Yeah. So they've it's got no idea. But I think tell me what you think about this. So they don't have that many books. I mean they've got a lot of books, but yeah. like you know they can't compete with Amazon and yeah. they can't compete with the world supply of books even in English, yeah. right? And so, but look, but people know their brand. Their brand's yeah. actually brand's pretty okay. good. Like I think that they should. We spoke about Kogan last week. Mm. I think they should go down the path of integrating a marketplace and also their own sales. Yeah. Let people search across 10 different brands, clip a commission where there's a sale on another brand. All That's 100% gross. I mean, because they're not collecting anything but their commission. This is buying from other booksellers. Yeah, buying from other booksellers. Like, go yep. and let them buy from... I mean, maybe Amazon is not the one to do it, but there's heaps, right? So creating there's a marketplace. Is it creating like a market, marketplace. And yeah. there are a few that exist already. You know, yep. like I dabbled with it. I had something called bookprice.com today. Which I, is in <laughs> hibernation. It's in hibernation. It's in hibernation at the moment. <laughs> but actually, it's not that easy to aggregate on books, hiatus. to be honest. Yeah. Yes, on hiatus, exactly. Um, um, but I think that um, they could build a very sustainable business, starting with that $55 million of gross profit, expanding to a marketplace, selling their own stuff where they've got it in stock that's competitive. Because I think at the moment, this idea of competing on price and paying for clicks, mm. that does not feel like the it's road to, to the a good bottom, business. Really. So that's right. You got, if you look at everything about, if, if you're looking to, and this is not investment advice, of course, but if you're looking to invest in a business like Booktopia, you've got a commoditized product, a lowish margin, and you've also got a founder who's no longer running the business, which 
I'm not going to comment on Tony being a great CEO or not a great CEO because I wasn't in the business. But I Plus never, there was a nuclear bomb that went off there around I'm, the board, I'm, I'm right? ignoring all that controversy. Yeah. But that's, not it, a, that's one of the reasons it's worth $22 million. Yeah, 100%. Because the board, like when they weren't um, talking to each other, they were trying to stab each other yeah. in the face or back, right? Like it was a Yeah, that, that, that's never ideal. But even if you take all that yeah. out, that, when you lose a founder from business, you need to have a really good CEO to replace them, an entrepreneur, mm. a, and they're hard to find. Yeah. And I'm not sure if the new person running it is is that good or not, but there's a big risk. So you, you lose all that secret source, that that knowledge, and you've got to try and find somebody who's ideally as good or better, and that's hard. So there's so many reasons not to like this business, not withstanding. In fact, they've done a, they did a great job building a competitor to Amazon in such a hard... Totally agree. And I'm really grateful for all the support they gave me. Don't so, you think about when it comes to CEOs, like you raised this point, how many times have people said to you, I've got this really good idea. I just, I need to find the right person to run it. And I feel like it's like saying, I've got this idea. I'm going to like become a gold medalist in the 100 meter like sprint. I just have to figure out how to run fast enough. Get some new legs. Yeah. yeah. I, I, like, is that not the hardest thing in the universe to solve for? Like finding someone to run a business well? It's, it's almost impossible. It's like when somebody comes, I've got this great idea. Oh, can you sign an NDA? Because I'm not going to tell you. Like for a start, I'm not going to steal someone's idea. Secondly, if I, someone does do it better, what's, then your business is never going to succeed anyway. So exactly. I always find that bemusing. And if anybody says sign an NDA, I'm not going to say, to, sorry, mate, I'm not interested in hearing what you've got to say. Well, because these people are scared because VCs will never sign NDAs. And yeah. like, you know, founders feel this, like, I think, appropriate concern <laughs> about someone stealing their idea. But the thing is, what you realise is that VCs are not business builders. Yeah. And the last thing they're going to do is steal your idea. What they might be doing is talking to six people in the same industry at the same time. Yeah. But uh, and then they might share what they know. But I agree with you. Like it, like no one is stealing ideas. No serious investor. Is and it's all about ideas. execution. If you're the best executor, especially. And as a founder, I was just talking to a little class. Uh, my, my sister teaches year eleven and twelve, and I was teaching the class. Sitting in the class yesterday, two days ago. And it's really I, I've always think there's two great skills founders need. You need to be a great salesperson. Uh, and because that goes back, you've got to get revenue in and you've got to be the number one salesperson. And you've got to be a product person, mm. especially if it's a, any sort of online presence. So you've got to have those two skills. And as the business grows, I think you've got to be a really good people manager. And you've got to recruit talent and manage talent and retain talent and have that great degree of empathy. So it is very rare to see a founder who goes from zero to court 25 years. Mm. Like, look at the... Look, look at the great founders people talk about steve jobs wasn't ceo in the first tip became ceo was probably ceo for about what 12 years before he died uh and then bill gates wasn't ceo probably from mid 90s i think when mm. steve Ballmer took over so he was ceo for maybe 17 years reed hastings recently departed the ceo role for exec chair he was probably ceo for about 15 years it's very hard to be a ceo for more than 15. even the absolute best ceos tend to tap out at 15 years mm. One exception maybe is Mark Zuckerberg, but he had Cheryl, who was kind of mm -hmm. a proxy CEO, and Brian Chesky at Airbnb, who's had Belinda Johnson, another proxy CEO. So you sort of you can be that sort of CEO chairman type for longer, mm -hmm. but to be a CEO for more than sort of 15 years is really hard because the skills you need at the beginning is very different to the skills you need at the end. I think Steve Jobs is the weakest on the list that you just mentioned. What do you say about that? I think that's probably right. Oh, I thought you might disagree with me no, on something. No, I'm not a Steve Jobs. I think he's, as a product person, Steve Jobs is brilliant. I think as a CEO, anybody who's that much of a bad person as he was, it's sort of the way he treated his mm. children, and, and which was pretty appalling. But that gets forgotten because he's such a good product person. And, mm. and then he obviously well, he was, a good, he was a good incrementer of product it's with much better designs. That's really everything. I think, and Scott Galloway says you never want well, to be first, you want to be second. Do you think that's, that's, not, that's not SpaceX? 
Well, SpaceX wasn't the first person to create a rocket. They just created no, a better rocket. But, and they created, well, I, but it was so much better. It was revolutionary. Like it lands on its end. Come on. If 10 years ago, if I said to you, there's going to be a rocket, not only is it not going to land in the ocean at the end, it's going to land on its end, end <laughs> I, and be reused. Clearly SpaceX is Elon's finest hour. That's his best you thing, can argue. Right? Musk wasn't actually the founder of Tesla. It was actually founded by a couple of different guys completely. A guy called Martin Eberhard. And another guy called Mark Tarpenning in 2003, uh, Musk came in to fund the business. And then uh, the two founders were sort of left in 2007. I think Eberhard actually sued Tesla a couple of years later and eventually settled. Yeah, it's one of the great myths that Elon started Tesla. Yeah. He didn't start Tesla at all. He came in, I think maybe they had that Roadster, that cool sort of sports car was the first car. And he came in when they were struggling with that at some point. Yeah, that uh, was like a Lotus. Like a Lotus, yeah, exactly. Lotus uh, Elise, I think. Do you know what the Tesla logo is? Do you know about that? The T, do you know what, what that is? is? It? No, what, what is it? It's like a piece of this, I'm going to get this perfectly right, and uh, well, someone hopefully will correct me. It's like <laughs> Darling, guys. the wheel of something invented by Tesla, uh, Nikola, Nikola Tesla, yeah. and he's taken a piece of it that looks like a T and yeah. made that the logo. I think that's one of the- it's a great logo. The coolest- logos because of that backstory yeah that I've come it is across. a great logo there's lots well. of things about elon musk i don't like but you got to mm. accept i think you have to accept that the guy is brilliant yep i think even people who don't and i'm 50 50 on him i think something i absolutely hate about what he does and there's something i love about what he does we share similar views on work from home so as a right or as in not liking it uh which is another episode we'll do for sure uh let's move on because uh, as usual we're, we're running short on time because there's so much great discussion uh maggie beer so everybody's f- heard of maggie beer the lovely have they celebrity i don't know chef. if jen jen wines that have heard of maggie beer you think they have i think they have i think they have uh well i'm technically a millennial i think i, I, I scrape a millennial, millennial by about a, a week so yeah, technically i'm like i'm jen millennial. uh that makes me jen, gen, gen y. Y. Yeah, but you I'm, don't act like a millennial like a, i'm more of a gen z i mean like yeah, I think so. No, I think no, no, no. I opposite. You think you're more of a Gen no, X? I think I'm more yeah. of a Gen X. I think yeah, I'm yeah. You, you, you got this. You've got an insane work ethic. I think, I think that's a Gen X character. That's a really interesting. I actually wrote, wrote a. I think it was a LinkedIn post about this. About, and talking about just talking about the work from home. Gen stuff, Y are better people, by the way. <laughs> I think. Do millenn- millennial, millenn- the, the trope of millennials and, and Gen Z being lazy and not. Yeah. Lazy. And the data was shown that, and Bloomberg has some great data, that the people who are most likely to work from home are, are Gen Xs and older. Yeah. And there's a reason that obviously- They might have kids. That might be the reason. More likely to have kids. But certainly when you get to 45, your kids are a bit older. Yeah. Uh, more, certainly more likely to have kids, but also obviously more senior in their careers and, and benefit less. Yeah. It's the millennials wanting to get that that nurturing, that teaching from, from more senior people yeah. who want to come in. So there's nothing, and we, we're very bullshy on- four days in the office one day not yeah. and even on the one day which is today we'll see a third of people in the office which is which is great we want to make sure that we're developing our talent and you can't develop talent over zoom it's impossible despite what people say agree uh, and that's that we'll talk about this more in another episode. i like Gen Z. i think they i mean there's a few things about them that's uh, that are hard to deal with like disagreeing in a direct manner with them but yeah. overall i think they've made the world a nicer place for human beings to live i think it gets better as they get younger i look at the super the young really young general my yeah. kids who are six and eight and gen alpha they call it and that alpha that's what they call it we're going to go through the Greek alphabet now. <laughs> we could, the problem is we started too low. We started yeah, with X because exactly. like my generation was like, what the hell are these guys about? We're <laughs> just their X. Yeah. And we should have started at B or something. Yeah. X is probably the last generation that – my cousin who's a bit older than you, my cousin's about 52, and he was the last generation to get those low house prices. So he could buy a house for 200 oh, grand. Is this, and, why, this is the, you are Gen Y with your whining about house prices. <laughs> 
There we go. It's another episode. So back to Maggie B. I know we didn't get them. That was the baby boomers got good house prices. Yeah, but it got really bad probably 2003 yeah, oh, apply, 2004. Yeah, we're going to talk about that when we talk about Airbnb. We will. Yeah. Uh, so Maggie B. So Maggie B. was a, a famous chef. I think comes from South Australia. Started uh, a food business selling sort of fancy foods like quince paste and all that sort of stuff, pate. Uh, and then she sold that. So Maggie B. isn't part of Maggie B. anymore. I think she might be paid as an ambassador these days. I think she's, she's got shares. I think. Or maybe a small amount of shares, yeah. but she's not a CEO or yeah. doesn't run or anything like that. But it's called Maggie Beer. So Maggie's fortunately or unfortunately inextricably linked to this business because it's her name. And the business itself suffered a 1.4% drop in revenue to 88.7 million last year. They, they bought an online hampers business that we'll talk about soon called Hampers and Gifts. They paid 40 million in 2021. That recorded a 7.5% drop in sales. Uh, as a result, they didn't pay what's called an earnout. We can talk about earnout in a second of $14 million. They also wrote down that business by 12 and a half. They kind of balanced mm-hmm. out. Uh, Maggie Beer shares have slipped 10% uh, to 13.5 cents as of last week. The shares were as high as 33%. Uh, the shares were as high as 33 cents in August last year. Actually hit 60 cents at one point. Mm-hmm. And as, so it's now uh, dropped. So the market value is now 60 million. It was around what, 250 million at one point. So it wasn't going incredibly well. Like all those COVID stories has dropped off a lot. Uh, you've got a bit of insight into Maggie Beer, mm. idea. So what are your thoughts on what's happened mm. there? Well, you know, I was, I was in the car with my uh, almost 17-year-old son driving him to school. you got a 17-year-old yeah, son. Yeah. As I, he's uh, very, very good at coding. Yeah. You might not be surprised to know. And, <laughs> and so uh, and he, I, com- I compel him to do a tennis lesson once a week. Right. That's it. That's a sport. Um. And so I was driving with him and he quoted me, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And I said, that's good. Do you know what that's from? And he said, yeah, it's a tale of two cities. And like, I was shocked. And it, yeah. I mean, it was something to do with computer games that he was quoting, for, just <laughs> yeah. to put it out there. And so the reason I lead with that is, that's what I think about Maggie Beer. This business is like a tale of two cities. <laughs> On the one hand, you've got all these physical products that are the traditional Maggie Beer th- mm. products, premium foods largely. Yep. And on the other hand, you've got an online hampers business, yep. which is called Hampers and Gifts Australia. And so I, this is a remarkable, weird company and story. I actually quite like it. Yeah. Um, but when they bought Hampers and Gifts Australia, they paid 40 mil half ca- stock, half um, script shares. That was the value of their company at the time, I think. Or they, they, paid, they basically paid – I can't remember the exact detail, but they basically – gave away 50% of the value of the company because they had to raise capital as well as to pay for yep. it. They gave away 50% of the company to, to bring this business in and to pivot to what would be an e-commerce business. Yep. And the amazing thing is, and they did that at 35 cents, yep. and the amazing thing is that um, it largely worked. Like 50, I don't, this is a company in my view that does not know how to do market releases. Yep. It gets excited about the wrong stuff. <laughs> and so... of this company's revenue today is online. This is a 50% online business. I think they're going to transition to mostly being an online business. And they paid, you know, $40 million for this business. The business is doing better than it was doing pre-COVID. And so, you know, where where I think this business is that... I'll tell you what I think is hard to understand about this company, but I don't think... The acquisition looks stupid in retrospect. Yeah, yep. it was at the top of the market, but they paid like three times earnings or something yeah. for at the time or something mm. like that. So I think that you know we're we're in what I think is going to end up being a low point for retail. I think like the like the analyst like Baron Joey or something said 
2024 will be the low point for mm. retail. And so I think um, this might turn out to be quite a good business. Yeah. And, um, you know, even now in the depths of like um, not performing great, this business, the only thing making any money in this business is the online hampers business, yeah. which they're feeding all of their existing products through. So yeah, exactly. I think... I think the synergy actually makes sense. Yeah, it's an the, yeah, I think this is not. I mean, definitely, it's not the worst acquisition of COVID. Yeah, and it might be towards the top end of the acquisitions. The guy that's the people that sold it, by the way, there were two co-founders. There was a woman who founded it, whose name has just eluded me, but she's, I think, very capable. Yeah, and there was an investment banker that got involved and invested. And funnily enough, when I had a digital agency back in the day, which <laughs> I sold, they were one of my clients, huh. and I got to. I was shocked at the size of the hamper business. Like I thought yeah. they'd be making three or $4 million of sales. Like yeah. this is a pretty interesting industry in my view. I love, I actually love hamper businesses. Uh, the beauty of hamper business is you've got you, stuff that costs 20 bucks in a basket, put some cellophane on it, sell for 80. It's actually a really yeah. nice margin business. The general people do acquisitions for synergy. So there's two types of synergies, expense synergies. So you hear, everybody here bannies the word synergies and synergies, mm. I think Warren Buffett says synergies is the excuse you use for an acquisition that doesn't work. Yes. Uh, but in reality... Like a strategic acquisition means one where you can't justify the price on metrics. Yeah, exactly. So you can you can get an acquisition that is accretive. So you, you've got a multiple of 20 times, you pay three times earnings. It's it's very accretive. It's like a bolt-on. Yeah. Kind of so, so someone, the market is valuing you at 20 times earnings yeah. and you say, I can buy this business at three times earnings yeah. and then do magic and the market will value it at 20 times earnings. Yeah. And then nobody wants to say that that's a sleight of hand trick. So yeah. it's called earnings accretive exactly and the absolute best acquisitions are the you think of the best acquisition i can think of in the last 20 years it's facebook buying instagram oh, yeah. so they paid i think a billion for it it's probably worth 100 billion now if not more i'm not sure what percentage of facebook's mm. uh, market cap that attribute to insta but it'd be 100 billion plus 100x on a, a billion acquisitions unbelievable and zuckerberg we talk about zuckerberg as a C, he's, he's the world's best acquirer whatsapp was an incredible acquisition and now and now Insta, Insta then whatsapp but what was so good about it? Is he's he had, the world's best acquirer and the world's best non-seller. Yeah. Because he, he sold he to Yahoo it. for a billion dollars. Right. Uh, but if you look at what he did, what Instagram and Facebook did, is Facebook had this great, obviously great tech stack and all these customers, all these, all these subscribers or users, and they could just port it across to Insta. So it was, it was the perfect acquisition. That's, that's a great example of a, in a way really a revenue synergy because you can transfer yes. it. The other thing you do is expense synergy. So that's when you buy a business and sack everybody. I, mm. I don't like to see that, but you, people can do mm. it. And there's, there's some merit there, I guess. This was a bit of a revenue synergy play in that you've got Maggie Beer products and you're selling them through uh, probably high-end boutique stores or food mm. stores. So you go, actually, I can now put the, replace this other stuff with Maggie Beer stuff and happen. And you've got high margin on some of this mm. stuff. Suddenly you're selling it online. I th- actually think that the rationale behind yeah, the acquisition done a good was job right with that. if you look at that i think they listed it i think they've listed it around 20 around 20 cents a share mm. uh so it's actually kind of it's a bit lower than that but it's not drastically lower so i think if you look at the story like if you compare it to that peak when they were trading at 60 cents a share now it's 14 to 75 percent down not great but if you look at where they listed they did jump up a lot so i i don't i don't dislike this business I also did, we, I talked about before, an earnout. So why don't we talk about earnouts? Let for a me second. tell you something before we talk about, I'll yeah. tell you about one thing about hampers. So I know hampers yeah. a bit because Daily Blooms does hampers. It's a small part of the business. Yeah. So I would say there's three kinds of hamper businesses. One is the Maggie Beer kind where they yeah. are, are food hampers that tend to focus on stuff that's not easy to buy in the open okay. market. That's a good business. And, it's, and, it's, and it lasts a while. Yeah, right? yeah, it's got, exactly. But And then there's a hamper business that's food stuff that you go and buy in the supermarket and they can just yep. put it in and then they just charge you a premium. Yep. So that's a 
crappy business, if you ask me. And and what Daily Blooms does is different, right? It's a yeah. flowers business and then it will get non-perishable things yeah. and not food. Like champagne. and Or whatever. even like, um, like uh, candles or whatever it is and put those in a hamper. And food hampers are probably the bigger part of the market by significant margin. Yeah. And I think that this Hampers and Gifts Australia business... That's in the, a nice part of the market, yeah. I think. So what happened here is that they did an, what's called an earnout. So how earnouts work for those of, who haven't been involved in one, and they are they're a bit of a, a poison chalice in a way. So let's say I'm buying your business, I'm buying your digital agency, for example, and usually you, you're much more likely to use an earnout when the founder or CEO is very important to the value of the business. So you, what you don't want to do is buy a, a digital agency is a great example because it relies very much on talent. So I don't want to buy ideas digital agency, which depends on ideas brilliance as a digital marketer, and then idea the next day pisses off and I've paid 50 million for businesses worth zero. Uh-huh. Funny enough, did you hear about that that business? There was, I think it was, I'm not sure what it's called, that the delivery, it's like the delivery for really Asian restaurants in Melbourne. Oh I yeah, I saw that. It's handy liquidation or administration. Well, what or happened was they, it, they sold it for 50 or 60 million dollars to the big, the big Asian food, like as based out of, yeah. I think it was based out of Singapore or Hong Kong. Oh, yeah, and then the next story. day, the guy who sold it opened up another business with all the all stuff. So, and didn't um, there was some issue with the sued. customer lists not they, being they transferred? The, yeah, they yeah. stole the customers, uh, yeah. allegedly. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure what happened there, but that is exactly why you want an earn out. So if I buy Ideas digital marketing business and Ideas 95% of the value of that business, I don't want Idea walking out the, the next day. So what I say is, Idea, I'll give you $10 million initially and then I'll give you $10 million after year one if you hit a certain EBITDA number or whatever the metric is. I'll give you another $10 million in year two, another $10 million in year three. It can mm. be stay, split in it however you want it. Or uh, if I'm asking for more money than you think the business is worth, I'm making $5 mil and I say it's worth fifty, and you yeah. say... It's worth 25 and you say, okay, I'll, I'll give you as if it's worth 25 yep. and then in two years, if you double the revenue, I'll give you it as if it's worth 50. I'll top you up. Yep. That's another good earn yep. structure. Exactly. So the good thing about earnouts is it gives, it gives the chance for the acquisition to happen and gives upside for the, for the founder CEO. The bad side is, is they're often controversial. Uh, and in this case... In this case, I think it probably ended up all right. So they wrote off $14 million and took off the $12 million earnouts. So it kind of evened out. But what what often, what can happen sometimes, which is not a good situation, is where the founder thinks they've done a really good job running the business, but they don't have full control over mm. the accounts or the books, and the acquirer doesn't pay the earnout and does something with the, the accounts. Says, oh, idea, you didn't actually make the money you claimed you make because they bunch, put a bunch of expenses there from another business. Or what... Whatever That's happened. Right. Yeah. And then suddenly you've got to sue often a much bigger business and you don't have the money because they haven't paid you the money they owe you. So that can be a really bad situation. So I don't, I don't, so here, you know, so I'll say why I think it's just such a hard business to understand the, you know, the numbers. But I will say the misunderstanding that most sellers have is in my experience, buyers generally want to pay an earnout. They're yep. not trying to, like, Try yeah. and get out of it. Like they want the business to perform well yeah. and they do not begrudge paying the earnout. So that, that's my experience on that. Look, I think. The thing about um, accounting is that it's crazy and it has to be because there once upon a time you would go and run a milk bar and you would say, like I sell this bottle of milk and it costs $2 and my revenue is $2 and yeah. that's it's simple, right? Yeah. But the world is much more complicated now and there's lots of different ways to sell things and you know there are issues like, um, I reckon it's worth touching on this, like if you buy a business for $40 million, then in accounting, like something has to happen to that $40 million because you're yeah. getting rid of $40 million of cash, let's yeah. say. Here was cash and shares. Something yeah. has to happen to it because yeah. the cash goes out, yeah. so something has to come in. Yeah. And you can't 
make up stuff. And so what you try and do is you try and say, how much stuff can I touch that's coming in? Comes like assets. Assets. So yep. by a factory that's worth five mil, okay, that's yep. five of the 40 mil. Yep. The problem with these online businesses is there's not much to right. touch, right? It's all, it's all what's called goodwill. Right. It? Yep. So you've got to call it something. So we call it goodwill. Yep. And the thing about it is you go and stick this thing on your balance sheet, which is basically, you know, like what you owe and what you own is how I call a balance sheet. And, um, and, you got forty million dollars sitting on there, which is yep. called intangible, which means you can't touch it. Yeah. And so every year, if you're a public company, mm. the auditors are going to come and say, "Is it still worth forty million dollars?" Yeah. And you know, there's all these formulas to work Absolutely. out if it is, and the formulas are largely made up, in my yep. view, and they're all disclosed. Yeah. And here they've said it's not worth forty mil anymore. When we do these formulas based on growth and the value of cash, and now it's worth twelve and a half million dollars less. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. But they got to get rid of that $12.5 million. <laughs> it has to go from somewhere. Yeah. And it's not going from cash because it hasn't moved your cash. And so it becomes an expense on your profit and loss statement. And then suddenly $12.5 million of an extra expense appears on your profit and loss statement. Yeah. That's got nothing to do with how you ran the business that year. Yeah. And so you got to get rid of that. And on the flip side, you said they didn't pay this earn out because it didn't mm. perform. And now there's $14 million that they said, oh, on our balance sheet, we've got this Liability. Liability, we're going to have to pay 14 mil. Well, we've got to get rid of that as well. Yeah. How can we get rid of that? Uh, just make it like the opposite to an expense. <laughs> what income, not income, the opposite to an expense. It's like yeah. an electron, it's like not a proton, it's a positron. It's the opposite <laughs> to an electron. We're getting very chem uh, chemistry heavy in this. Well, this I said episode, one thing. Yeah. I, I think it's probably right. And so, <laughs> and so I think that is what the problem is with these kind of profit and loss statements. You've got to get rid of all this... I'm going to call it accounting junk yeah. to try and figure out how the business actually performed. And if you get rid of all of that, it actually did about break even. Yeah. And if you look at the cash flow, I'm going to say one more technical thing. Here. Yeah. So if you look at the cash flow, I, I'm more interested in what did the business do in terms of cash yeah. when there's all of this accounting mumbo jumbo going on. Yeah. And this you sound business, very Gen X there. Almost. You sound almost baby boomer. Mumbo jumbo. Yeah. yeah, I know. I know. Got, you've got to appeal to a wide audience. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, and basically, this business made $7 million of free cash. Yeah. And so I looked at that a bit it's more decent closely. Business. That's decent. And what's it come from? Well, actually, their inventory went down two and a half mil. Mm. So they sold more stuff than they bought. Yep. That make, that's good. That's good. They had too much inventory. Yeah. And so that two and a half mil, if it's a 50% profit margin, let's call it $5 million of cash that they got yep. out of that. Yeah. So maybe five of their seven mil was just them selling down inventory. I'm fine with that. Yep. Yep. So I think overall, like this business is still okay. Yep. I, I think the Hampers business, they're not going to run out of cash. They've got $10 yep. million of cash on their balance yep. sheet. They're... They're, they're, what they owe and, and what is owed to them is about the same. Yeah. And they've got, I don't know, 14 mil of inventory and the whole business is worth whatever you sell. Only 50 million. So yeah, yeah it's, it's, it feels like I've seen worse investment, 100%. investments in this. And so uh, I'm, not, I'm still quite positive about this business. On the proviso, as we said a second ago, that the CEO that is relatively new, and by the mm -hmm. way, I saw the chairman quit like a day ago or whatever, oh, after, really? after three years. But, yeah. So, but, I like, actually know him. He's a good guy. Yeah. Yeah, well, it, well, he's not the chairman anymore. Yeah, and, so, um, and so basically what I think is this, it all depends on whether this CEO is Absolutely. good. Our next story is on Airbnb, the global villa platform that launched out of Y Combinator. And the latest news on Airbnb is the city of Melbourne plans to bring in a $350 registration fee for short-term accommodation providers. By the way, this isn't just Airbnb they'll be charging, it's Stays mm. and all the other ones. 
to push more housing into the long-term private rental market. We're currently having a rental inverted commas crisis, uh, which tends to happen about every 10 years and is very linked to money supply. We can talk about that later. The governing council of Melbourne, which is run by Sally Cap, voted last week to push ahead with a local law uh, to govern the short sale industry, which has 4,000 listings or 14% of Melbourne's residential stock, which seems really high. Airbnb, understandably, wasn't happy with the change, noting that the Victorian government is best placed to manage the sector, given there are 79 councils around Victoria coming up with 79 potential different approaches. Sally Cap, the embattled Lord Mayor of Melbourne, claimed, we are in a housing crisis. Every home that becomes available matters. That's why we are always looking at ways to encourage property owners to move into the long-term rental market. But why do you here, call Sally Cap embattled? I think there's fairly. This is obviously a national podcast. So I don't want to talk too much about Melbourne issues, but there's. I think that the general view is she won't run again, and if she runs again, she probably won't win. Right. So I don't think she's been overly popular. I don't think she's been a particularly good Lord Mayor. Yeah. I was actually in Andy Maguire's office when he got the message. Obviously, he knows Sally. She was on Collingwood board, and he got the message she was running, and he goes, "Oh, Sally's running for Lord Mayor." So it was just around the corner from here. That's the greatest double name drop I've heard. It wasn't it? Wasn't it? I don't know Sally. Impressive. It's really a single name. I don't really know oh, Sally. That's true. If I was going to want to know one of the two of them, I reckon Eddie is the guy I'd want to know. Sally and I actually worked at the same law firm at different times. She's a classic, I think she's a could be a baby boomer, so we, we're about 15 years apart. Right. But um, actually, I think I, I, I don't usually invite people on LinkedIn to connect, but she popped up as I used to work at the same firm and I, I added her and she uh, she didn't accept my, my ad to LinkedIn, which was, I think, the, uh, the first people, only person who's ever done that. So your, first com- your first conversation to her could be, why did you feel that during the destruction of the city of Melbourne during lockdowns, you continued to support the Premier blindly? That'd be my first yeah, question to her. It's a fair question. I think I've actually met her since, actually. I didn't bring up the LinkedIn non-acceptance, but... Uh, <laughs> You've got to bring that up and come back and tell me what she says. Should, I should, that. actually. Well, she'll, I, she's a politician. She'll say, she'll still have some answer that won't answer your question. Yeah. Well, she actually, she before this, she was, she, I think she ran the property industry council or something like that. Right. So she's an old, she worked with developers. So. so talk about what you think about this. I don't like it. I don't think it makes sense for councils to be doing it. I think the, the bigger, broader question here is, does... So we have an issue where there's not enough rental stock mm-hmm. and there's been other ridiculous ideas like rental caps, which never work and have never worked. And, and thankfully, Dan Andrews has backed away from, from that. Yeah. And I don't think, uh, you know, well, I was looking at doing that. People should either. Google Stockholm's history if they want to know how yeah, rental caps go. Yeah, or New York's go. history. Yeah. Uh, but Stockholm is a catastrophe because of it. I think it's a catastrophe. I think Ireland at the moment, there's queues 500 metres long for apartments because they've capped the price. But it is a real, this is a real problem in Australia. Like, it's a huge problem. Like, I... I have deep sympathy for people, especially people with families and people who are younger. Like, there's just no rental properties and the price of them is out of control. I'll take a slightly contrary view. I clearly have sympathy for someone who can't find a house. Yeah. But let's not talk about, let's talk about, so when you think about rental costs, you think about sort of 25-year-olds who can't find a place. You don't think about families as, as much, maybe we should, but I think, hmm. think about sort of the 25-year-olds. I think what happened, especially during COVID and even in the interim period is, Rental prices, so we had a rental crisis in 2006, seven as well. Mm-hmm. Similar period of irrational exuberance in the markets and money's being printed or whatnot. Because yeah. we owned a corporate apartments business that rented apartments. I could see we were struggling to rent apartments ourselves. Uh, so we could see it then. Uh, and it's, it's really exactly the same as it was, everybody forgets it was 15 years ago now. And that solved itself. The market tends to correct. Uh, the problem we've had in the last, certainly since COVID, is people started living by themselves. They, they, they lived in bigger houses. People's expectations changed a lot. So I instead see. of being in a shared, I, I always shared a place with two or three people. People live by themselves. So of course it's going to be a more expensive proposition if you don't mm. have three people to share, I think. And 
I'm no, I'm absolutely no fan of, of Philip Lowe. I think he was a disastrous mm. RBA chairman pre-COVID when he continued to, and during COVID when he continued to drop interest rates. And then he started doing the right thing and everybody criticised him, which was a disgrace. But during and pre-COVID, people just expected too much. Money was free. Everybody was getting paid by the government for, for doing nothing. Uh, wages were, were up. So it was a great period for, for having lots of money. So people just changed their lifestyles. And now liquidity has been sucked out of the market. Interest rates are up. On. Uh, I'm more sympathetic for these central bankers. I mean, I think Philip Lowe coming out and saying that, you know, interest rates are not going up for another year and a half, that was not the smartest decision, right? I thought that was yeah. that was very bad. But generally, like, you know, he's under a lot of, I don't know, I'm much more sympathetic to central bankers. They're under pressure. The US is dropping. Nobody remembers them if they print too much money and drive inflation. People remember them if they're associated with a recession. And so- well, The I, contrary to that is, if you look at the, probably the greatest central banker of, of probably of all time was Paul Volcker, who was right. central banker in the late 70s, early 80s. And he he bravely, he raised interest rates to I think 16, 17, 18% in the US and inflation was off the charts for a decade. 70s was just this decade of what they called stagflation. So high interest rate, mm. so high inflation, high unemployment, the worst situation. And, and Paul Volcker, said had enough of this i'm gonna with the backing of ronald reagan till he lost lost the plot a bit but with the backing of reagan volker went bang he increased interest rates tamed inflation and suddenly the market went on a 40x oh, but you like you like that him because you're you're sophisticated but all of the people i mean it, the us is a bit different because there's fixed term mortgages but all the people that lost their houses because of 17 or 18 percent interest rates will feel the same way about him as you know paul keating made his comment of it's a recession we have to have and there was 20 percent interest rates and anz became the biggest landowner in Australia because yeah. of all of the Paul King repossessions. Now, Paul King is now considered a bit of a hero for, for both sides of politics, really, for, for, oh, I don't for that. I I'd say that. I think he is. I think Bob Hawke certainly is. And they've Yeah, but he's team. no Bob Hawke. They were, they were one and the same. You know, there was this, I don't know if I told you this, but there was this um, great line on a very old podcast. It was called How Green Was My Cactus? <laughs> and um, it was about politics in Australia. It was on Fox FM before there was, in the days when like people listened to the radio yeah, much I more. And no, no, it actually works very well, radio advertising. Yeah. Um, but... And this line was about Paul Keating because you know, he's so uncharismatic. It said, Paul Keating, a man who thinks charisma is the singular of Christmas. <laughs> that is a great line. Paul, uh, Keating, Paul Keating himself had some incredible lines. Uh, agreed. One of the great, the great Australian politicians. I think this is a protection racket. Uh, you look at it, who benefits from this? And it's our clients, it's hotels. So yeah. arguably Electric Escapes benefits because we... And Melbourne before, City but- Council. <laughs> This, to me, is a protection record. It's like the mafia saying, there's a bit of a crime problem in this area. You need to pay us to stop the crime. And it's like, this is all that's happening is that nothing will change. The other thing that you didn't mention is they say there's going to be a 180-day cap yeah. On the amount that's of- the bigger issue, actually, I think, because it well, means you can't run it as a permanent Airbnb. Right. That's a much bigger issue. 350 is fine. It's the 180 day cap. I get that there's a rental crisis. I'm, I think I'm more, maybe more sympathetic to it than you are in its genesis. Like, all I care about is these two things. How do we help people today yeah. who can't rent? I think families not being able to rent is actually a pretty serious problem. I think that is a problem. very serious problem. Um, and the second thing is how do you fix the problem long term? There's only one way to fix a supply and demand problem in the long term. We can play games distorting markets forever. Ultimately, mm. you have to increase supply because you're not going to reduce demand. So they've got to build more properties. Yep. But in the short term, you've got to have a solution. And I understand they're worried that Airbnb is sucking a lot of stuff. Mm. I just think um, that... I'm cynical about this. I don't think that's the primary driver of this. I think the primary driver is let's get a ton of cash for the city council. Well, the, well, the primary driver of the housing problem, in my view, anyway, is and I, I wrote a number of articles over COVID. So during COVID, we had 
a period. We had a 10-year period pre-COVID of very low interest rates. And they started at 8% in 2007 and ended up being like 2% pre-COVID. Now, that was uh, Glenn Stephen and Philip Lowe's mm-hmm. biggest problem. They just continually dropped its rates for no reason. Then they had a real problem in COVID and had, no, had very little, and it dropped it basically to zero effectively. So when you're dropping rates, and they also effectively printed money and they gave it to banks because they were worried banks would collapse. So banks got to borrow super cheaply and make this yeah, great so they margin. dropped rates, printed money, and then the government dropped piles and of money from a helicopter. Fiscal stimulus, which is you just give money, yeah. people money. So there's money everywhere. There's money everywhere. So what happens there is when... And, the definition of inflation is increase, effectively increasing the money supply. So the money supply increases significantly. Most people have more money, and inflation benefits the rich much more than benefits the poor because they're closer to that money generation. So all rich people, rich people are having a great time now. They've got all this money. The assets are going up in value. Stock market's still pretty close to record highs. Property market's still pretty close to record highs. People who didn't get that money were the ten people who, didn't have, who, who were poorer people. So yeah. inflation benefits you proportionally based on how rich you are. So everybody who thought, oh, how great is the government doing this great stuff, giving people money? All that was doing was increasing debt levels and benefiting the rich. And people just, it was the ultimate, you know, one of those tricks when you go, like when you go to New York or whatever, and they, they have the ball and the, yeah, and the yeah. thing and you never get it right. Yeah. It's like the government doing that with a ball and all these idiots thinking, oh, great, the government's giving me money. Really, I was just doing the thing with the ball and the, and the cup. Yeah. And they were, they never, you never get the right cup because yeah. the person with the cups is smarter than you. The government, in this sense, was smarter than the people. And well, I think the government was smarter at trying to be elected. I mean, that's all they were trying to do. Uh, the problem with Morrison this, and Brunberg lost, so it didn't actually help them. In I the know, end. But the problem yeah. with all of this, it, well, I tell you, it helped the state governments because the thing Absolutely. is, this: the only way that you could have avoided dropping money on people's heads in large quantities is by forcing life to continue during COVID. Because you can't yep. lock people up and Absolutely. then say we're not giving you money, yep. and you can all starve to death, right? Yeah. And so that is the reason that money was falling. 100%. And the consequence was that the state governments got re-elected because lockdowns were portrayed as protecting the community, which yeah. we, we can't argue with that because we're completely on the same side. Yeah. But I think that is – the fundamental problem is that um, Western countries made – like certain Western countries made certain decisions about how to treat COVID yeah. and that required dropping money. Yeah. Sweden didn't. Yeah. They didn't drop money. Yeah. So we didn't actually copped inflation, but basically from elsewhere, because you can't be the only one. You still cop right. inflation, you still import inflation. But absolutely, that was that was in my view. Do the I reason. hate Airbnb? For, oh, really? Yeah. As a customer or yeah, as, as a, a customer? Really? Yeah, because I used to love them. I used to think because I, you know, I travel a lot, yeah. and I do not like small hotel rooms. Yeah, I feel quite claustrophobic in them with the amount of travel I do, and so Just I just traveling as a family or traveling yourself, myself predominantly. Okay. Yeah, I mean, as a family, it's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, but now it's terrible because I'll <laughs> tell you why. Like, it used to be amazing. It used to get really nice places. Yeah. from human beings, mm. and they were. Cared for well, yeah, and it was a night, and they were cheap. And now, what's happened is you get places that are misrepresented in their photos mm. with fake reviews run by professionals, professionals. Yeah. Like yeah. maybe there's some of them are still owned by individuals, but no one is really living in them and then renting this them out. Is like made comfy it's a business, yeah, yeah, these are businesses, right? And they're not cheap. Like, I think that often they're more expensive than hotels because there's yeah, all these absolutely. fees that are tacked onto the yeah, bottom, exactly. right? And so you can't stay for oh, two for, nights. For one person, it makes no sense now. You can't stay for two nights because yeah. of all the fees that get tacked but on. Like, if it's, I, I, was, I was in South so I hate. I hate them. I'm, the experience. Yeah, it's, I, I've been, I was in South Beach in Miami last year. They with betrayed me. <laughs> Jesus, Brian Chesky will not be happy hearing this podcast. <laughs> I'm sure he's listening. Uh, but we stayed in South Beach. We paid about – I booked quite early. We paid $800. We got – 
South Beach, where's that? This is in Miami. The, okay. You know the beach where they film Miami oh, Vice, yeah, where Jelly yeah. Versace used yeah. to live, where he's tragically murdered. A Gen X, uh, a Gen X show, Miami Vice, with baby birds. I didn't watch Miami Vice as well not. before my time. Yeah, but, well, you um, can't say you can... I'm a student of history, but... Now uh, that you've um, said that you're Gen Y, you can't admit to watching a Gen X shows. I'm not yeah, watching TV at all, really. You have to call it linear TV for a start. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, we, we were in South Beach, and we paid 800 bucks for a... It was like a two-bedroom, two-bathroom, nice, one of those Art Deco sort of, really, it was like very close to the beach. It was in a slightly, I had to walk upstairs, but not so not a great building, yeah. but it was completely fine. We were there for one night before a Disney cruise. Mm. Anyway, we walked down, to, like you walk down this beautiful South Beach, like there's the one hotel, there's a W, there's a Ritz-Carlton. Yeah. Ritz-Carlton is obviously a very nice brand. The leading room, so it's a smallish room, it was an okay size, but call it a 40 square meter room. Yeah. How much do you reckon it was? So we paid 800 bucks. At the Ritz-Carlton. How much do you reckon the leading room at the Ritz-Carlton was? Five hundred dollars. Try three thousand. Three thousand. Leading. So imagine like the big, the better rooms, like ten thousand. That's per night. So in that case, Airbnb saved me. I wanted to get two rooms. Yeah. So Airbnb saved me like five grand. All so right. in that case, but it was that's fantastic. Your, you, I mean, and so maybe it's good for that kind of. And it had when a was that? When it had a washing right, machine. Right. But when was that? That was eight months ago. Okay. Well, that's a good experience. And when I go to the Gold Coast, yeah, I stay in Airbnbs. And that's a nice experience. Yep. But when I went to New York, I booked this Airbnb. It was very expensive. New York doesn't have very many Airbnbs because they, they really can, they know what Melbourne's doing. They, they basically can't, very hard to Well, let me on. tell you what was going on with this Airbnb. It was expensive. It yep. had a view of the river. The Hudson River? Yeah. And this is what was going on with it. Somebody rented an, an expensive apartment and then they subleased it on Airbnb yep. against the rules, <laughs> which meant... I had to go in initially through the basement <laughs> up to my apartment. A apartment was in like bad condition, not well maintained. Supposed to put you in like a sack and put you through. I, I mean, it wasn't far off. You know? <laughs> and um, anyway, I didn't. I ended up leaving. Yeah, I told. I wrote to Airbnb. I said, "This is the scam that's going mm. on." I got no refund really? from them. I think my insurance gave me a refund. Oh, okay. I'm surprised Airbnb. No, they didn't. They said nothing was misrepresented in the uh, in the listing. Mm. Well, that's true. Like they didn't say this building is complying with the laws required to lease it out. So yeah. Because they didn't say that, they weren't misleading me, right? But uh, yeah. so I think my experience of them is they've become expensive. Yeah. They've become it's not homely and nice anymore. It's very different how it was. 12 yeah, years and ago. like you can say, well, because like the, you know that's because I'm old fashioned and I want the t- ten years Gen ago X, Airbnb, yeah. but Gen X. <laughs> but I actually think that was a better experience. Yeah, and also that experience did not ruin. To come being back to you know this whole point, that experience did not ru- ruin um, stock availability for renters because mm. it was predominantly people renting out properties. Yeah, where. They get so much money for renting it out for a week, they would stay with family or something. Or when they went away, they rented it out. These yep. were not permanent rentals. These are, Airbnb today is basically a hotels business. Absolutely, it's a hotel. hundred percent. It's. A, I've had a few sort of back. They're taking forth. residential stock. Yeah. And putting it into the hotels. Hundred percent, they do. And so we, in a sense, compete with Airbnb at Luxury Escapes. So yeah. Booking.com's got, I get Qantas points for Airbnb. Booking.com's got a very big villa business now. So does Expedia. They, they bought a bunch of villas. So it's not just Airbnb that do it. It's, they all, and generally it's become quite commoditized. So the same apartment appears on all of them. Looking at Airbnb, the business as a, as a sort of investor. Yeah. And I think it's worth about a hundred billion now. So the, right. it's basically record level. They're making a bunch of money. Yeah. I'm quite bearish about Airbnb. I think there's, it's very commoditized stock. So they don't own the stock. They used to own the stock. Now they don't own the stock. They've, during uh, you COVID, mean don't own as in because it's on other platforms. It's on other platforms. Yeah, uh, they used to be quite exclusive, so you, you needed to go to Airbnb. Yes. Now they kind of you find a bunch of different. There's on Booking.com yeah. as well. Uh, we're going to start a villas platform. There's there's villa channel manager. We can quite easily. I can connect to forty thousand villas pretty quickly. 
uh, if you've got enough technology, you've got the tech stack to be able to do it. Hmm, it's not, good. it's far from exclusive content. It's on hotels.com. What's Expedia? Hotel yeah. I get I get stay credits when I book yeah. Airbnb type accommodation through hotels. Yeah, which is so Expedia owns a bunch of these. Yeah. So I think they own stays, they own um, VRBO, which is a US version. Um, they own Expedia. So, yeah, obviously, Expedia. So they, it's very commoditized business now. Yeah. I think Airbnb doesn't have a supply advantage. They're very highly valued. I think if we got an Airbnb valuation, we'd be worth $2 billion or something. So they're super highly valued, uh, which I think way far too high. Uh, and I don't, and I think Brian Chesky's pretty good. Uh, but if you look at what they did over COVID, they had, they we did the opposite. We expanded our team over COVID. Mm-hmm. We we lent into it. They sacked a bunch of people. Yeah. Stopped doing all the stuff they were doing. They've got a nice experience as business. They kind of killed everything else, and they just focused on profitability, which I've done. So the market loves it. Uh, but I don't see a huge amount of growth. Do you think in this they're going to pay a price for focusing on profitability at this point? Because eventually you have got to pay the piper, and you, yeah. they've got a growth multiple, but yeah. they're not a growth but, business anymore. I mean. My, my, yeah, as I said to you, like, I don't use them very often anymore. And uh, I tell you the thing that they have done well, though. They sh- when they shifted all their performance spend to brand spend for yep. marketing, they've really done a great job building a brand. And they were smart to move great away brand. from performance because they don't need to advertise on Google. Like, everyone knows them. Their absolute best strength is the fact that they've got, you don't stay at a villa. You kill a brand. Be it. Kill a brand. Uh, the thing is, that's, that's, but that's, that's shown in your profitability. That's shown in your marketing spend. That doesn't mean you're going to grow at a great rate. No, that's I, I agree. That should boost your margins over Absolutely. time. And it does. And that's why they're profitable. We're quite yeah. profitable now. And they've got a great brand. And I'd like to say we have Luxury Escapes, a similar thing in the I hotel business. I consider your brand 30% better than Airbnb's brand globally, Luxury oh, I, I think Airbnb's got a much better brand than we do. <laughs> um, in terms of, uh, in terms of people saying, I oh, Airbnb, something that said, what we do do over at Booking.com is if you buy a, a New York hotel for two days, you don't say, I did a Booking.com. You say, I stayed at the Grand Hyatt. People generally say, I did a Luxury Escape. So we do have a similar... People love Airbnb. Luxury Escapes. I'm not saying this, like, because, you know, like, I'll criticise well, you at every... Opp- to, yeah. No, I'll criticise you at every opportunity. <laughs> but, like, um, but when I speak to people about Luxury Escapes, it always shocks me how many people have booked through it. And then I speak to people who have said, oh, I've never booked through it, but I go on and look at the deals because, like, yeah. I guess vicariously. It's ultimate travel porn. Yeah and, yeah, and, like, your brand is, like, I mean, I'm sure you know this, but, like, your brand is very strong. Do you do brand tracking or you don't do? Like you- we do a bit. Uh, our brand recognition is, is okay, but still a fraction of Flight Center, for example, and a yeah. fraction of Booking.com. So we've got a lot of work to do, but our real focus is how do we t- do what we've done in Australia in the UK and US because right. clearly our ROAS is so much higher our return on ad spend I should say is yeah. so much higher in Australia because you have that and it's interesting it's brand versus non-brand we can talk about this another, another we're getting mm. getting to the end now but the, the, most startups will only do performance marketing because it's so easy to, well it's relatively easy to attribute and track and brand's impossible to track yeah. uh, but there is in my view, some great benefits in doing brand, especially if you're good at performance. So they do work really well hand in hand. I love really brand well marketing. Hand. As you know, we've had this discussion. I love brand marketing. I, by the way, I don't use ROAS. Like ROAS is basically saying, how much revenue did this particular bit of ad generate? I don't care about revenue. I care about profitability. Or net, or net ROAS then. Net, exactly. Yeah. So work out how much, like how much ROAS after, gross profit yeah. or contribution margin yeah, exactly. or whatever it is. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I totally agree with that. Like I think the reason that ad agencies say just use your revenue as a measure for how well it works is because it gets them more money. Yeah, obviously ROAS depends. If, you got, if you're a software business, you can have a much lower ROAS and so be profitable. Exactly. So anyway, that's the topic for another day. We've reached the end of this episode. Thanks so much for, for joining me out here. It's, it's always this great is my favorite. This is my favorite hour of the week. Do it's you also my favorite hour of the week. Honestly. I love it. I can't wait for the I've next been looking one. forward to it for three days at least. Yeah, well, I this is this is the highlight for me. So <laughs> I look forward to the next one. I can't wait. Can't wait. 
Thank you for listening to The Contrarians with Adam and Adir. If you want to submit a question for the show, please send a voice recording to Adam J. Schwab at Instagram. Today's show was produced by Mike Liberale. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Please give us a rating and don't forget to tell your friends. We'll be back next week for our weekly analysis of all things growth and tech.